This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. Call to Adventure, hosted by Alexopoulos and John Duckworth, an exploratory conversation about facing the unknown, an opportunity to discuss those pivotal moments that illuminate new paths and reveal deeper purpose and meaning in our lives. All right, well, here we are up in the cigar factory in Charleston, South Carolina, another episode of Call to Adventure, and this is John Duckworth, Alexopoulos. Super pumped for you all to hear our conversation with Ellie Richter. Um, just an amazing individual. She's got a great story, and the way she tells it is so perfect and uh, insightful and enlightening that really excited to share it with you. So without uh, much further ado, Alex, anything to contribute, or should we just roll the tape just a really compelling conversation you know i mean i think we both walked out of that conversation feeling um exhausted in the absolute best of ways yeah you know um deeply impacting on the heart level emotional level head level um a lot to say and the way she went about saying it was so uh concise and compelling so without further ado ellie richter all right well here we are Another episode, John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, here at the Cigar Factory for another Call to Adventure. And today we are fortunate to have Ellie Richter with us. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm pumped. Yeah, right on. Well, um, you know, not everybody, some people give us, you know, one word answers when we ask a bunch of questions and you gave us eight pages. So oops. thank you. No, not an oops. I mean, it's super helpful. We love that. I mean, it just cool. makes it so much easier to get into the conversation knowing that I know that much more about you and you've really thought about your past in that way, you know, intentionally. Mm -hmm. And not only was it really insightful, but also there's a ton of humor mixed in there, which I love. And one of the things that I found really funny, which I thought would set the tone for this first call to adventure, was you describing your 19-year-old self, who you also described as your alter ego now. Mm -hmm. um, can you share with our listeners what your 19-year-old alter ego looks like? Well, of course. You know, first of all, I think, I, I think it's funny the perception that people have of you, you know, now. And when people meet me now, they think I'm so calm and so positive. My 19-year-old self is everything opposite of that. So she was angry and bitchy and resentful and felt separate from the world and just, you know, the typical... And what were you wearing? Oh, yeah. You're getting specific. <laughs> so shaved head? Well, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did have a shaved head. <laughs> shaved head, army pants, Doc Martin shoes, mm -hmm. white tank top, more tattoos, aggressive. Yeah. What? Well, a lot of that is actually true how it was. The tattoo part, not. But not, okay. The, my That's alter, the more the alter yeah, ego part. My okay. alter ego part okay. has a lot more tattoos than I have now. Um, okay. But yeah, my 19-year-old self did have a shaved head. Okay. I did that. And um, I wore a, a wife beater tank top and army pants and Doc Martens with a little, um, what do you call that? The uh, 
at the tip of the shoe, the, the metal. steel toe? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You were just in case. You needed to really yeah. kick some butt. Yeah. Okay. And I felt like that too. I felt okay. like I had to fight my way through the world. Super okay. upstream and that that's how I needed to assert myself. Is that particularly German? I think at the time that was my attempt, my first attempt of empowerment. You know, uh, the, the programming in German, male, female, masculine, feminist, really interesting. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of patriarchy happening, a lot of inequality, at least that was my experience at the time. And I thought, you know, already having, I guess my soul already wanted to step into what I'm doing now, which is female empowerment. I just didn't know how. So I went aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, I'm, I'm really curious about the whole art alter ego conversation. I'm okay. curious what your thoughts would be on this. I was talking to my older sister who said that in her studies, she's found that we actually have like nine different personalities. And so I've had this conversation with John about like, identifying and, and actually giving names to those different people, you know? And so not fighting against that maybe younger self of you that comes out on occasion, but sort of welcoming it in and then saying goodbye and doing that a little bit more uh, fluidly without as much angst about it. Do you, how, how do you feel about that given where you are now and the, and the two so different than one another? Oh, I totally agree with your sister. I think we have, you know, to put it in terms of in my line of work in, in the psychology, spirituality work, life coaching world, we would call that your inner children. And we have not only a younger version of ourselves, like a three-year-old, a four-year-old that is wounded, but also the 15, 16, 17-year-old. I often describe it as an outer child, like a teenage rebel that's inside that comes out at times. So sometimes it's the inner child that hurts and the outer child or the teenage rebel comes in and wants to quick fix. Say, you know, you had an intense day and you feel sad and triggered on something and then your, your inner teenager says, let's go and get drunk or let's go and eat the whole carton of ice cream. That would be the teenager coming out. And I think it happens for me all the time. And then I do family meetings <laughs> where I get all my children <laughs> oh, you get them in all the together. house. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's a meditation type situation, but it's like a family meeting and I talk to the different parts of myself. So Not it's like a roll call. You're like, okay, thank you bit. all for coming. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah, like, and then I say, I need you all to cooperate and this is what we're going to do now. And Ellie is going to go to work now and you can go play and you, you're you going to get some fun later. And it's literally like talking to these different aspects of myself. Beautiful. The idea for me is coming into wholeness, you know, just embracing and loving and accepting all parts of yourself. And I definitely think navigating our inner children <laughs> or our different alter egos, however you want to call or label it, is really important. I love that you know? way of describing it, having a family meeting. And it's an inner family meeting. Yeah. It's just getting, and in order to do that, you first, of course, have to have the awareness to start locating and, and, and isolating the different personalities that appear you know, and can contain whatever it is, you know, the habitual patterns or, or tendencies and being able to identify those. Yeah. I know you've done, spent a lot of time working through that in order to come to a, a new awareness. Um, I wanted to ask, going back a little bit to your 19-year-old self, I wanted to flip the coin to if your 19-year-old self was sitting at a party and you now walked in, and you started conversing. What does your 19-year-old self think of you now? Oh, that's such a phenomenal question. I think I would probably represent everything my 19-year-old self would be annoyed about. <laughs> 
like Acacia. really annoyed about. And and that's like that with a lot of things I remember at that age, looking at yoga, for example, or people who meditate or people who follow the question, who am I and why I'm here as super stupid. <laughs> you were just yeah, completely not into that no. whatsoever. And it would have I'm, been like an allergic reaction, right? You'd have been like, who is this person A little in the bit. It, and I do have to be fair to my inner 19-year-old. There was an element. She did care a lot about other people and helping them. And, you know, so the, it wasn't, she wasn't a complete bitch or, but, but she definitely, there was so much resistance or mm. it, it would be so much resistance towards everything that I stand for now. Yeah. I find that so interesting because, and, and not to say, of course, I didn't want to label your 19 year old as, totally as a total cool. bitch yeah. and, and clearly not because who you are now was already there. Look at, she's defending herself right now through me. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to flip. You need the, to have a family meeting? Yeah. <laughs> we can take a time out. <laughs> let's, let's take that one step further. Mm-hmm. What, what would your current self say if sitting there at a function, your 19-year-old self walked through the door? Oh, I, I, I would definitely want going to want to talk to her and give her a hug and tell her that she's good enough and that she's capable and that she doesn't have to have an armor on and that she can just surrender. I mean, there would be so many, I would just, my mother instincts would kick in and yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. I would definitely see just a, a, a girl in pain, mm. you know? So go back to Germany, set the stage for our first call to adventure. Where, where did you grow up in Germany? I grew up in a tiny little village. The next big known town would be Hanover. Mm-hmm. So there are 800 people village uh, surrounded by a lot of nature. Um, we lived next to a farm. So there was uh, lots of animals. You are woken up by a rooster and the mm-hmm. birds. Birds are loud. So you, you wake up with the sun, you go to bed with the sun. It was a really liberated way of growing up because we could play out in the fields and go into the woods and there was no fear. You know, like today, you wouldn't let your children go outside and play by themselves without supervision. We were constantly by ourselves in the fields and running around in animals and nature. Hmm. That part was really epic. You go to school. You graduate college, a lot of uh, maybe cultural impressions or pressure to go down certain paths. What what did it look like for those of our listeners who might not have grown up in Germany? Germans um, value intellectual pursuit. So I, I think about this a lot. You know, what do Americans value? What do Germans value? You know, where do the pressure, the outside pressures come from? Outside pressures in Germany definitely are not as much about looks. So my perception here is like now that I'm 40, almost 41, like I can notice my American programming being like, oh, maybe I should fill in the blank Botox. (laughs) And then I'm like, what the fuck? Where's that thought coming from? Oh, yeah. Programming. That stuff is not so much in Germany. In Germany, Mm. it would be like. What are your intellectual pursuits? Do you have a doctor's degree? Are you an academic? You know, so I grew up with my parents very much telling me that I needed to get a certain degree. There's three types of school, high schools that are uh, tailored to your grades. So at fifth grade, you start to get separated into these different high schools based on your um, 
intelligence, I guess, or your intellectual or your grades, basically, not intelligence, grades. Mm -hmm. And so I was expected to go to the school of the highest grade and then was expected to go to a university and I was expected to study medicine. So that was my path. My, my dad would introduce me. This is my daughter, Elizabeth. She's going to become a doctor. Right. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and she's going to marry a prince. And I shit you not. And stay at home. Right. It was weird because I was supposed to become a doctor, but then I was also supposed to be a wife and a mother and all of that. So I it was very confusing and also nobody ever asked me what I wanted, you know. And were there a lot of available princes in Germany? Actually, at the time? yeah. My oh, my, yeah? my dad yeah. okay. <laughs> my dad isn't was in a fraternity and okay. um and roamed around those circles okay. of, you know, so he had his he had his eyes on a few, thinking, "All right, this is the way this is." They were work. a few eligible bachelors okay. that you know, and so I started really early to go against that and to not consciously. It wasn't like I was sitting down thinking, "How can I piss off my dad?" But I remember going to these functions at the fraternities, dressing really provocative, behaving in a way that I knew it would provoke uh, controversy. You know. Looking back at it, I feel really sad about it because it was a great thing. You know, the fraternity mm. really gave him a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And I you were being a little disruptive that. Mm -hmm. in that yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Something happened on the way down that path that your mom and dad had envisioned for you. Can you describe sort of that experience? Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot. I think that there are many men and women that are the first generation of uh, doing things differently. I haven't coined a term yet, but I, if I'm open for suggestion, you know, that first generation where you stop the cycle and the traditions of your family and where you decide, I'm going to do things differently. This programming, this way of thinking, these patterns no longer work for me. It was pretty early. You know, I was pretty early. I was super intuitive as a child and I had uh, connections to source and insights that 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 made me realize I'm going to go down a totally different path. I don't know how yet, but I'm going to. And it's it like really crystallized in 12th grade when I learned about the history of America and I knew I'm going to live in America. I just knew. I mm. didn't know how. Um, and I had my shaved head. <laughs> I disappointed my history teacher. He he always really liked me because I was front row, always like my arm up, like knowing or whatever. And then I came in with a shaved head and he thought it was for political reasons. So he thought I'm go I've gone like radical or something. And he said to me, Elizabeth, I'm so disappointed in you. <laughs> it did, really? <laughs> yeah. But anyways, to answer your question, <clears throat> it, it happened during my teenage years that I knew that I somehow I can't continue down this route. I don't fit this mold and I can't, you know? Um, and so in 12th grade, I kind of got direction what I wanted to do and that I didn't want to become a doctor. Um, I had wanted to study music for a really long time and then I didn't feel good enough for that because in the orchestra that I was playing, a lot of the kids that were younger than me, they practiced more and were just better. So I stopped myself from pursuing music and started pursuing physical therapy, um, healing of the body. And so in that process, I disappointed my parents over and over, which wasn't easy. You know, you know, you know the feeling when you disappoint your parents. And I disappointed them until like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my dad, uh, when he died, he basically finally said to me, not that I needed it, but it was, it was healing. He said to me that he now understands why I'm doing what I'm doing and that he supports it. But up until then, it was an against the grain path that I chose. And it did start. And they were not very supportive of those decisions, or at least um, you could certainly feel the tension there, like where they were, feel the disappointment. Yeah, and I think everybody that breaks free of the family programming will experience that, you know. So mm. I was aware of that at like my early 20s that I'm going to be doing things differently and I didn't expect support. So it wasn't that I every single time seeked validation and approval and support because I knew changing path, changing gears, you know, I wouldn't get high fives. So not only did you not become a doctor in the way that they were hoping you would. Um, you fell in love with an American athlete and moved to America. Yeah. And this is the moment that was the first identifiable big leap mm -hmm. that you can go back to. Yeah. Um, take us back to that. Yeah, you know, when, when your question came and the call for adventure, and I think I wrote about this in my answers too, it, it does sound like such a badass thing to do, but at the time, it didn't feel like it. It you didn't. Know? What did it feel like at that moment? Like a no-brainer. Okay. Like it felt like this is what I got to do. And it wasn't like I was even thinking about fears or what to do. I just did it. It wasn't like you really had to gather your strength and mm -hmm. you know, like talk to a lot of no. people about this. This was just like, okay, I'm... Well, you had already had that premonition of going to America. So this yeah. seemed like, okay, here's America and here's this guy I'm in love with and let's, I'm doing this. So you well, just jumped. I, I just did jump. And I think about this a lot. I think if there was social media involved back at the time, maybe I would have had more thought about it. Mm -hmm. I think that social media changes the way that we pursue life and go after things because there's all this noise from the outside, you know, and you share like, I'm thinking about this and people are like, opinion, opinion. Mm. Yes, no, maybe. I didn't talk to many people about how I felt and what I wanted. I just did it. You know, I remember sitting in my bedroom I had quit my job and I had just gotten a job. I'd just gotten out of college, gotten a really great job. The college that I went to, they asked me to teach anatomy and physiology and like start rising as a teacher in the college. Would have been an amazing opportunity. And I thought to myself, I don't want that. I'm going to go to America. I want to be with the person that I thought I loved and I'm going to scrub toilets. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Like I remember that thought that I don't care if I scrub toilets, I just want to be with him. Now, mm. Please do not repeat that at home. <laughs> like, that's not love. That's not love. That's funny. I'm curious because you, you talk about that adventure and you, you say one of the lessons I learned was just to do it, yeah. right? Just do it. Yeah. Um, you also describe with more mature eyes looking back on that decision as one of being probably lovesick and codependent. Yeah. And how do those two fit into the way you, how do you square those two different ideas? Um, I mean, for one, in the big picture, I'm so grateful. You know, I'm so grateful for the codependent pattern that I grew up with that I thought was love. Not only did it bring me to America, but it also did bring me all the lessons that I needed to learn so I can be teaching love and helping people and, you know, doing right. what I'm doing now. So it it doesn't, it, it's not opposition for me at yeah. all. You know, I did the best I could at that time. And obviously, and this is also another lesson that comes out of it, all the things that we perceive as wrong or unhealthy 
they all serve. So yeah. there is nothing wrong or unhealthy. It did the codependent tendencies totally served me yeah. until they didn't, you know? I, I've often said that I've learned as much from those I admire and want to be more like as I have from those that I don't and want to move away from. Totally. Right? Um, it helps you as much from square who you are right when you're because in opposition it, in that way because if you can stand more firmly in your position then it helps you identify like who am i it's in sharp, relation to that this right. that i that i don't want yeah it gives you something to react to in yeah. many ways you learn more from the mistakes if you want uh, maybe not the right term but um or those you don't want to be like as you do from those you do you know because yeah. it, it it creates a reaction to it so it's contrast. And, you know, yeah. for, for a while I was always trying to avoid contrast or not, yeah, or run away from contrast. Almost this idea, let's just move to Costa Rica and have our own community there so that we never experience the contrast of people who do things differently or whatever. But contrast is a good thing. And so this mm. contrast of codependency or of what love isn't, that it taught me so much more than any book that was teaching the actual essence of love. You know, the contrast is always the greatest teacher. So I agree with you on that. It might be a great time to <laughs> tune in to one of the first tunes you selected. Who Absolutely. I, Xavier Rudd, who I saw at Leaf, uh, a festival they put on up mm -hmm. in North Carolina, Arts and Music Festival. And uh, that song really captivated my attention. What brought it to your ear? There was a time two years ago when uh, it was post-divorce from that man that gifted me being here, which I'm eternally grateful for, um, that I had this idea of traveling the world. And that song was the first song of the playlist. And I wanted to travel the world starting in Germany and starting with my dad and visiting all the places that we did as children that I didn't appreciate then. But now at that time that him and my relationship was so awesome, I thought, what a great idea to start my world travel in Germany with him. And the idea of this year of traveling was that I only follow the sun and go to places where it's warm. So that was... <laughs> That's the first song, Follow the Sun. Right. And so, okay. you know, so that was how the song came about. And I, I don't think I made, I may had maybe one more song on that playlist, but then my dad died. So that, that travel mm. actually didn't happen. What happened is instead of starting my year travel, I traveled to Germany for three months and I traveled with him and I traveled, he traveled on. Mm. So, I mean, that song means a lot to me in that sense because it's it was my idea was to travel the world and i did travel the world just not that world not the way you're a different <laughs> just another way. world and it was much more magical than an mm. actual travel in the world could have ever been well let's hear it follow the sun xavier red
this day is done Set your intentions, dream with care Tomorrow's a new day for everyone A brand new moon, a brand new sun song Mm -hmm. thanks for sharing yeah and meaningful on so many levels so many levels well so you just do it you jump you're in america you're married (laughs) um and it gets difficult before it gets easier right totally um describe the that that entry you know because i'm sure you came in wide-eyed and and wow you know this is in, this is incredible a whole new place and a husband and um did it, it was there a point when it kind of crashed down on you and you were like holy shit what what did i just do where am i it didn't it didn't really happen until later i until think later. in okay. retrospect you know now that i have some level of awareness or self awareness 
I'm actually amazed on how I how I navigated that. You know, there wasn't social media at that time, so keeping in touch with family or friends was challenging. It was like, you know, old school, like we can't imagine at this point. It was 2002, I was 23, turning 24, um, and I didn't have a work permit. So for the first, I think, six to eight months, I was at home and watching TV, being a housewife, cleaning, cooking, and watching a lot of TV and learning English that way. But I remember... So we had like suddenly 200 something channels and I grew up with three. And so <laughs> oh I was God. sensorily overstimulated. And I remember watching um, the, uh, goodness, what was it? Definitely Oprah, Jerry Springer. <laughs> Jerry Springer. And then I was thinking, what have I done? Where am okay, I? Okay, like, yeah, you know? that'll make anybody and feel that way. There were a couple of religious shows too. Okay. You know, they're the big churches with the preacher. And that's very foreign to, to a German, you know, okay. this kind of... And also there's this biological resistance towards these mass, oh, you know, things because obviously, you know, for good reasons. So, but I did ta teach hmm. me English. So, and during that time, I kind of had a culture shock. So my nervous system was overwhelmed. So it was probably good that I didn't work for six to eight months, but then I started working and my degree wasn't transferred. So, you know, I had just graduated from college but nothing that it I had. It meant nothing here. It meant nothing. And that was challenging. My ego took a real blow and I was pissed. Um, and I started working as a holistic personal trainer and nutrition coach. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of, you know, that's a side aspect of physical therapy. So I was like, okay, why not? I've been, I supported myself through college in Germany teaching classes. So why not do that? So my first job in America was at a Gold's Gym. Mm. But again, I also had this mindset that I just want to be with him. I would scrub toilets. So I, you know, I kind of got over that pretty quickly. And you weren't scrubbing toilets. This was still sort of in line with, yeah. you know, your background and, and yeah. your interest. And I actually loved it. And I realized yeah. I'm really good at it. And, and a lot of the components of physical therapy, I was able to continue helping people in a way. Nowadays, a lot of... A person training and physical therapy is blending together and there's like, you know, master degrees and doctorate degrees. Back then there was sort of a new thing to combine the two and people really appreciated it and I loved it. I was good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you described that as I, I made a note here as, as this was sort of your first steps into being an entrepreneur, working for yourself. This idea was a foreign concept to you, right? And and the way you described that was driven by desire and dissatisfaction. And, you know, it's so often those are the two things that come at the same time, you know, it can be a little messy, but yep. good motivation, yep. right? And so that's how it entered. Yeah, I mean, it was, I was definitely frustrated, you know, that think about it, this, I grew up with this programming that only people that have an, an academic degree and are either doctors or lawyers or pharmacists or along those lines uh, are worth something. And so coming with a degree where I graduated as top of my class and coming in, basically none of it mattered. Hmm. So my ego took a blow. But then being over here and being around people who just did what they needed to do and that programming isn't here, you know? So it, it allowed me to be like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to do what I need to do. This like, you got to do what you got to do. This American saying, it kind of kicked in and I did what I got to do. So, yeah. and I never thought like, oh, let me become an entrepreneur and work for myself. It just, it just was that way. And, and it allowed me a freedom and that taste of freedom. Mm. I hadn't had that before. In the job that I worked right out of college, 
I worked eight hours seeing three patients an hour with 20-minute lunch break. And by the end of the day, I couldn't remember what I did with the first patient. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, and and I was burned out already. You t you talk the programming, which is how you describe it, which mm -hmm. is is so strong, you know, because um, you come to Charleston and you say, uh, still stuck on the thought that I needed to have an academic degree to be enough and to do something legitimate. I went back to school to study health education with a dabble in religious studies and psychology. So, I mean, really dive in back into that path. Of, <laughs> yeah. And you described that as really fun and totally unnecessary. Totally. Right. How do you help clients that you work with fight back the programming? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, you have to identify it as programming, right? You have to identify it. the challenging thing, and this is now science, you know, and you probably are aware of this, but we think about 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. And we're only aware of 5%. So the rest of the, the 95%, that's where our programming lives. So it's the stuff that drives us day to day without our conscious awareness. So the first challenge is to bring awareness to what drives you every day. What are the beliefs that are supporting you bumping up against certain blockages? So the first challenge is to identify What is the limiting belief? So I, I help my clients in the sense that I help them identify what are your beliefs around money? What are your beliefs around career? What are your beliefs around worth? What are your beliefs around what a success looks like? Identify success, identify well-being, identify what matters in life. You know, health is wealth, like your stuff. You've identified what matters to you um, Or, or core values, you know, and in the identification of core values, we often also identify what are the limiting beliefs that have been running on habitual, like you call it habitual programming, the mm -hmm. habitual. So the programming. And they're often unseen. Right. Just, the unconscious <laughs> is the habitual unseen yeah. mind. And yeah. so digging around in there is really fun. Yeah. And it's really important, you know, so, and we, we come up against. I like that you mentioned that. I mean, I. You said digging around and there's really fun. And and I don't want to just breeze past that because okay. a lot of people would say, you know, that's really hard work. But I love that you could bring, and this has sort of been my mantra for a while now, it's just an air of curiosity to these things. And that just carries with it a bit of lightness, mm -hmm. like rather than a heaviness. Because this idea of limiting beliefs and old programming can sound like this heavy, heady, totally. difficult stuff, you know. And it is at times for sure. But like the idea of dipping in like with an air of curiosity and fun, like why do I do these things? Like I find that fascinating. And, and just a, it. a healthy like mindset oh, to, yeah. to take as you start to dip your toes in that world. Well, as an entrepreneur, you have to. You have to confront, not just as an entrepreneur, but specifically when you go against the grain, specifically when you do something that hasn't been established for a while. You have to... You have to face the limiting beliefs in order to create a different abundance, in order to create a different new reality. And I do think it's fun because once you've identified a limiting belief, all you have to do is evaluate for truth. Is this mm -hmm. really true? And a lot of times you you Where lean does back it come and, from? Well, you don't even have to know. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't Just, even matter. Is it true in the moment for is me? Is it true? It, yeah. Is this actually true that you're a piece of shit? You know, and then you're like, no, actually, it's not. Right. You know, right, and then right. how is there a ceiling to how much money I can make? Right. Or, you yeah. Know, do and I, you know, do I deserve a partner that loves me as much as I love them? Right. Or whatever. On. These are b limiting beliefs. Yes. That, and I actually like tracking them back. 
personally, yes. just because it helps me understand it wasn't just some th- you know thing that flew into my mind out of nowhere, but like, oh, okay, I get that. Like my grandmother did this thing and then my dad ended up this way. And then suddenly I've got this idea that, you know, in the back of my mind, the whole world's a threat. Like, where'd that come from? Yeah. Now I understand that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Eckhart Tolle always says your understanding doesn't get you any closer to the truth. Hmm. I think it's totally interesting too. And my dad would say comma and. <laughs> um, you Sometimes it can be rabbit hole because sometimes oh. you just don't know where it's coming from. Okay. You know, some you intricate can... limiting beliefs may just be cultural programming or you picked yeah. it up in a very unconscious moment. So, but I do agree mm. with you. It's fun. It's fun to know, like, where did I learn this and where is this coming from? Ultimately, I'm I'm a very efficient thinker in that sense. Being German, I like to be like, okay, what is the limiting belief? Is it true? How does it make That's you enough. feel? Okay. You know, how does yeah. it make you feel? Where do you feel it in your body? And then also cleansing that out of your body, you know, so not just changing the thought and retraining the belief, but getting that residue out of your energy field. I think that's super important. And that's where energy medicine comes in, you know, because sometimes shameful beliefs, they get stuck in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think physical movement is so important. Yoga practices, uh, breath meditation, you know, all the things that you do, Tai Chi and things like that to really work on your energy field and get that energy out of you, mm-hmm. you know, so that it's not just a head change, a mindset change, but an actual visceral, physiological, energetic, chakra tuning kind of situation. Absolutely. You you found a spiritual mentor who I, th- I think you practiced with for, what, eight years? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you refer to a book... Uh, called A Course in Miracles. Yes. And John, you did a little research on that book and it's it's got an interesting beginning. Can you share with us sort of how that book came about and give us I, a little context? You might know more than I do. <laughs> I think she channeled it. You yeah. know, I think that it was, came that through that her the, as channeling. What mm-hmm. I read, I hadn't didn't know a lot about this. I very, knew very little. I kind of recognized the title, A Course mm-hmm. in Miracles. But there was a woman, what uh, Helen Schuckman, and who said that the voice of Jesus came to her and told her to dictate this book. And yeah. over the course of maybe seven years, that's that's how it came to be. Mm-hmm. My first reaction when I hear that is like kind of allergic. Like I grew up Catholic, and 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 it just sounds crazy train and a little bit beyond. Like that would be a barrier to entry for me if that was the primer. I'd be like, yeah, next book. Mm-hmm. But then I dove a little deeper, and when they describe miracles, this was at least from the little bit of research I did, it said, any change of mind away from fear and separation towards love and unity. And I thought, oh, okay, I see why Ellie got into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that sum up some of the things that were inspiring you about this book? Or can yeah. you share more about it? Yeah, and my, my it- teacher introduced it as basically the course book. And he didn't introduce it like, hey, there was a woman and she heard okay. the voice of Jesus. So I didn't, I didn't learn about that until I read the introduction in the book, which I didn't read initially. The way that okay. I read a book is like, give me the good part, and I often skip the introduction. That German efficiency. German, yeah. well, right or it. maybe some ignorance, you know? Uh-huh. So, But I don't actually, and I, I totally agree with you. Had I known this from the start, had I been like, hell no, <laughs> I'm not opening this book, and I'm not interested in this. So probably good you didn't know, because it yeah, ended up exactly. being really... 
uh, informative and inspiring. Yeah. To me, it's a course in forgiveness. And back okay. then, you know, I still was in this 19-year-old alter ego, angry at the world, you know, angry that my degree wasn't transferred, angry at some other things. And at that time, I was maybe 24, 25. And I was really bumping up against all my undigested fields and my baggage from my teenage years, mostly around the relationship with my parents, you know, breaking out out of the mm. generations and generations of victimhood and disempowerment as a woman, I, I needed a change. I needed forgiveness for myself, for my parents, for the path, for being here. And the Course in Miracles is a course in forgiveness. Do you, were you looking for a mentor or did somebody just appear? Like, was it something you were consciously seeking or was this something where uh, it, you suddenly, it occurred to you, oh, this person is a mentor now? Because it's different. Like yeah. Alex and I were talking about this before. Like I've had people who have been really impactful. Um, and I might lose, you know, the term mentor might come in, but oftentimes it's more like that was a really important person in my life. You know, I didn't spend eight years with them in, in, a, in a real thoughtful relationship, for instance. Um, so when I hear that term, I'm always curious, you know, like how does that come about? Because mm -hmm. I do, we do hear this a lot where somebody will have a powerful moment and they refer to this other individual as a mentor like this really happened and maybe i think brendan james talked about that mm -hmm. um in the last so uh, did robert lang robert lang did yeah. as well right right so i was just curious you know um in looking back is that something that happened to you or something you were really seeking intentionally i think i seeked unintentionally like okay. I, I think my there unconscious was a seeking. mind there was definitely a seeking you know because i was young and in a foreign country and there wasn't an older person leading me. And I think at that age, I do a lot of mentorship now for younger women at college age. I think we seek and it's a good thing. You know, there used to be red tents where women would gather and do this and generations would pass on wisdom and knowledge to the younger ones. We don't have that anymore. So I was definitely seeking and I was seeking a father figure. Hmm. And my mentor became sort of a projection of what I needed in a father until until I took back that projection and learned to love myself unconditionally, you know? It took eight years <laughs> or longer. So it was very, it was super powerful to work with him and to have somebody love me exactly for who I am and offer me that kind of love that I didn't think that I didn't experience. And this, I have to tread lightly, you know? I don't want to talk about my parents in a way that they didn't love me unconditionally. They did the best they could. My experience and perception of my childhood was of such that there were limitations and conditions on the love and acceptance that I received. Um, so that's really yeah, it's you know, an interesting way to 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 frame it. I like that because you know the first thing you said was they loved you unconditionally. And then the framework was what you felt was there were conditions placed on the love. So it's a very different thing from saying that's what they did. You actually, right. you know, the first thing was they loved me unconditionally. And there's yeah. a there's a Jack Canfield quote that I love and I go back to all the time. He says, you know, think about it. Like what parent lies in bed with their spouse and brainstorms, how can we screw up our kids right. today? You know, exactly. and and you know they're always doing the best they can with given the circumstances yeah. that they're in and the information and the tools available. Yeah, well, the two of you are parents. I'm not, so <laughs> it took me a little. I really had to learn. Somebody had to oh. teach me this. 
that parents always do the best they can. I think that when you become a parent at some point, that's for most people a pivotal point where they realize, oh, wow, my parents really did do the best they could. You know, I, I, I seeked that mm -hmm. out because I really needed, I really needed healing in that department. And the Course in Miracles does teach you nothing is what it seems, you know, and nothing is personal and all these really powerful life lessons that you can really spend a lifetime learning and embodying and practicing. And it teaches you that through daily lessons. It's a really great course. It was very impactful. So you start down this path of like what you now refer to as a holistic life coach, right? It, you, time is early 2000s. What, mm -hmm. what time would that yep. be? It's sort of the dawn. Uh, social media is not, I don't, I don't even know when that arrived. <laughs> when Somewhere the, around that time, yeah. <laughs> right. So you have sort of, you've broken down some of the programming. You're comfortable that this is a direction you want to go in. Um, there are no rules yet. There are no schools. Um, it's sort of infinite. Mm -hmm. um, tell us, a, talk to us about that and, and how you bonded to sort of create, because you worked with some really talented women um, together down that path. Yeah. That accurate. Yeah, I was fortunate that I had friends who uh, really were supportive of me and clients who were supportive of me. Um, but back then, I was—I didn't think I could ever make a living out of it. I remember sitting at the gym where, where you and I met at the floor and having clients or people that just talked to me and they were going through things. And I was like, you know what, Just let's just sit down in the yoga studio and talk. I, didn't I remember that. I'd, I'd come in. <laughs> she was, by the way, a fantastic physical trainer. And I'd come in and I was just, you know, mentally exhausted or physically exhausted. And I'm getting ready to get pounded by a German trainer who's going to tell me I got to do all this weight training. And she'd be like, you don't look really great. Let's, <laughs> let's just go in the other room and have a chat. And I remember coming out of those and being like, wow, she's as impactful up here in the mind as she is on my body, you know, so, um, Thanks, dude. yeah, re really. Yeah. Those were the, the baby bunny stages. Yeah. And back then I know I didn't, I didn't think I could make a career out of it or, you know, that, that I would be worthy or enough or that people would even like, it. I didn't think in terms of an energetic financial return. It was really just my soul wanting, you know, I was following the call constantly. I sometimes miss that time because as soon as you get into the business aspect of things, it gets a little muddier, you know, and I have to continuously every single day be like, I'm just following the call. I'm just following the call. And that's what I feel called to do. I've been like that since I'm this little, that I have an empathetic and intuitive sense of what's going on with people. And that I just want to hear about what's going on and hold space about the, the stuff, like real, like below the surface stuff. So it started in 2003, 2004, uh, with yoga training, you know, I got really into yoga and I started to have visions of what my life could look like and what I could be doing with it. Um, and I just kept following the call and it was just like moving to America. I didn't think much about it or talk much about it. I just did it. Can you, um, when you say following the call, I mean, it, it can be, it's easy to breeze past mm. that as a, as like a, something everybody has and it, and it is, but most people aren't as in tune and I say this generally, widely, generally, but aren't aren't as in tune with their intuitive voice. And I think you bring it; you've brought it up a few times. And, um, and as a holistic life coach, I'm sure you're you're asking your clients to to listen deeply 
to that inner voice. And as we talked about at the front end of the conversation, you got a lot of voices. We all do, <laughs> right? So how do you personally or maybe guide other people to recognize that call that, that you were fortunate enough to be able to just hear very yeah. clearly? Well, it wasn't as clearly. I have it to wasn't. say that, okay. you know, um, it, it, again. It, but you would just define yourself as intuitive. Super, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. so, so you're sort of in touch with that. Yes. And I would, I would personally say that most people in Western society are not, wouldn't label themselves intuitive readily. That would might be, there's like a, a layer of Several, conditioning right? and patterns that's over top that kind of hides that, and a lot of noise mm -hmm. that, that can drown out that voice. So I was just curious yeah. um, in that direction for you. I had a lot of noise too. You did? A lot of noise, but then also the, the gray layer of what was going on underneath in my marriage. So now that, that I'm out of that, my intuition is much stronger and I trust it again. However, that call was constantly there when I was with people. Okay. So when okay. I was with people, say- You were with them. You were really I was really with them and, and people were- when I heard that call the most, okay, I would be able to, you know, somebody would come in and I would notice they have a gluten intolerance. I really need to speak to them like that. They need to take care of their thyroid or that they need to speak their truth or that they need to quit their jobs. Like it would just come through me. Wow, It was yeah. almost annoying because <laughs> sometimes people don't want to hear that. And so yeah. I learned to, I learned to def definitely challenge, you had to learn channel effective that delivery. Little, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, like I would be in contact with so many people at the fitness place that I was working in that I constantly had this experience of total expansion when I was with people. And so the call would come, you know, when you would you and I would hang and I would leave that conversation and I would be like, I need to be doing this. This is what I want to be doing. So I kept fantasizing about just spending time with people and talking with them. It took eight more years from that moment of recognition mm. that I wanted to just sit and talk with people to actually be in the rea reality of that. I love that. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, you know all uh, all good things are worth waiting for. So you know you, you you take your time to get there, but you know what a wonderful call to follow. Well, and I mean, I see this now in the younger generations. You know, again, but go back to that concept of first generation warrior so to speak you know the next generation gets it sooner so i see now younger generations having access to this kind of way of designing your life on purpose and being able to study something and then immediately go into business with it and be successful so all this like trial and error that i went through the blockages of fears and limiting beliefs now you can buy a book and it tells you exactly this is how you do it and i'm like yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just—it's interesting because I think there's a juxtaposition where the cultural silos that sort of governed, let's call it the first generation, as you as you refer to, whether in Germany or in in the states, where you'd go to work, you'd go to university, you'd come out, you'd get a job, you'd have two kids, and and life was, and you were going to be married, right? And the family has broken down. Fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce. I think I saw a recent statistic that the average person uh, has 22 different jobs today, wow. whereas in the past it was maybe one. Mm -hmm. um, the advent of social media. Um, and so while at one time, on, on, on the one frame, it's liberating, right? We have the world at our you know, feet and we can go in whatever direction. There's nothing defining us that we should do this. I mean, it's certainly become a lot more open 
in relationships, um, in career paths, et cetera. Um, on the other side, you have social media, you have a rise in suicide, you know, um, I was reading a statistic because I've had that impact my family, you know, recently. And then you can't help but think of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Um, I'm just wondering, how, how do you think about those two things, I guess? Um, sort of the, the unlimited opportunities, which sounds so exciting, and the unlimited opportunities, which sounds totally terrifying. And I, cause I, cause I think people are reacting to those things in very different ways. Yeah. I definitely, you know, I always have two perspectives. One is the human perspective and the other one is the spiritual perspective and living in this duality is, is our reality. I think we live in that duality of spiritual beings having a human experience. So as a human, from a human perspective, it's scary as fuck. You know, looking at, uh, in, in Germany, the perspective is like your data, your personal data is out there and people can take it. You know, that's kind of the perspective. Fear. At fear. Lots of fear around, you know, how public our lives have become. Um, over here, it's really what I'm witnessing in myself from just the human perspective is also the comparison. Now you really see what everybody else is up to as before, you know, you you can literally participate in someone's life or what they put out there. So that's, it's scary. It's limiting. So that's why I like to answer these kind of questions or think about them from a spiritual perspective, from an energy perspective. And even leaving spirituality out, you know, um, my boyfriend is atheist. So we have these discussions all the time and I can agree or we can perhaps agree on energetics of things, on the scientific things, that everything is energy. So from that, I go back to that and that gets me back excited and that gets me back trusting that everything is energy and that we do stand in the field of infinite potentiality and that everything is a projection of our minds. Quantum physics, when you go into that, I can feel safe in that paradigm looking at what's happening currently with our world. I also do like to look at it just from the the super big picture of, um, I guess, uh, consciousness evolving. You know, it's our consciousness evolving and, and it's where there's light, there's darkness. And so we're growing as a collective consciousness and I do see trends that are really beautiful and wonderful and healing. And then I do see a trend manifested perhaps in one person that's uh, gathered our collective evil and we're here to heal it. So ultimately, you know, spiritually speaking, we are the universe expressing itself and we're here to, to get to know ourselves. And this is just a game. And when we leave our bodies, we go back home. I like this perspective also when I think about death or suicide. Mm -hmm. It helps me to think about it in these terms so that I, um, from a human perspective, it is horrible, it is gut-wrenching, it is painful, um, unfathomable. From a spiritual perspective, it's a very different feel to it. And I embrace both. Don't think one is right or the other. You know, I just do think that it's important to have a, a belief system that supports also um, a feeling of expansion always otherwise we lose hope and when we lose hope that's a very dangerous place to be mm. in yeah there's a it reminds me of just the idea that transformation which you referred to a moment ago is uh, not always an easy moment and so you know in the midst of that which is 
I feel the same the same way you were expressing there. Um, that it doesn't surprise me that there would be you know a lot of human challenges in the midst of that yeah. of a collective transformation. Um, but speaking of energy and transformation and big moments, we've got another one to d- to talk about. But before we do, I wanted to get into the next song from uh, U2, uh, Beautiful Day. And any any particular um, uh, memories regarding this song or uh, is it just a beautiful day? I mean, I was just talking about that with my uh, boyfriend last night about uh-huh. what is our favorite medium of art, knowing that I'm going to spend time with you guys, you know, and we both love art so much, but music is our favorite medium. And this song, I mean, it's so self-explanatory, you know, yeah. just gets you into the greatest mood. And anything that can uplift you, it's so, on, and you too. I mean, <laughs> I think about when I'm 13 and the, one of their first albums and I had my first boyfriend and we were holding hands and he wanted to kiss me. And I'm like, like, no, teacher could see this. So <laughs> <laughs> just like, that's my memory of you too. And then it's a beautiful day. It's just so. That's awesome. It gets me into a great mood. Right on, let's hear it. Oh. is a blue shoots up through the stony ground there's no room no space to rent in this town you're out of luck and the reason that you had to care the traffic is stuck and you're not moving anywhere you thought you found a friend Take you out of this place Someone you can lend a hand In return for grace It's a beautiful day Sky falls, you feel like It's a beautiful day Don't let it get away On the road But you got no Oh, my God. 
Welcome back. We're here with Ellie Richter, Call to Adventure, co-hosted by John Duckworth and Alex Opolis. Uh, what? Well, appreciative that you found your calling and, and are a life coach because uh, the way you can capture words and talk about complex topics is uh, quite compelling. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your story for us and for others. Um so we're going to go into your third call to adventure, which uh, you describe more as a time period than, than a particular uh, path. Um, set the stage for what's going on in this third call to adventure. Yeah, you know, when you guys, um, the way that I perceive adventure, it's, you know, so, some people think of adventure as like, oh, I did a great travel or, you know, you know, the word adventure itself, I thought about this a lot. And when I think about what's the biggest adventure of my life, it was definitely this time period. Started 2013. And I'm kind of still in it, in this adventure of, um, again, breaking out of programming. So it started with the dismantling of my marriage in 2013. And without going into much detail of that, because, you know, I want to respect my ex-husband and he's moved on and so, but, but, but what happened is what from one day to the next, the reality as I knew it changed completely because um, he, well, he told me some things that have gone down that I was unaware of that completely changed my life. I remember it being like breaking into a million little pieces. It was mm. a breaking open moment. And a lot of people have breaking open moments, you know, death, divorce, a, a diagnosis of illness, some sort of change that feels extraordinarily painful is like their breaking moment, wake up call. And the interesting thing is up until that point, I thought I've been awake. <laughs> you know, when you think you're awake, oh yeah, I'm, I think I'm there. It was like, wham. So it broke me open to, uh, uh, to love and purpose and passion in a whole new ways. But it was like learning how to walk again. I literally couldn't work, walk for a couple of days. I remember my friends had to drive me and it was so shocking what unfolded in within a day. And so that was the first layer of that. So then I found my footing. The first layer being just broken into a million pieces. The first and, and layer being my marriage, yeah, right? Yeah, so, but, and um, the result of that was you feeling really shattered. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. I mean, talking and I'm about sure the human experience. And, oh, and, completely. And, and confused yeah. and... If but, anybody met me during that time, I was sitting in front of Whole Foods smoking a cigarette, crying. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like, it was brutal, you know, and I felt it all and I didn't have a filter around it whatsoever because I've already lived this transparent, authentic life. I was like, fuck it. This is me right now. It hurts. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I am. I don't know where's up and where's down, hmm. but I do know everything is happening for me. And like, there were certain things that kicked in like certain beliefs that I've already strengthened long enough that did carry me through. It wasn't pretty. It was really messy. And I say this openly because I think it's important when we talk about grief or transformation to not hide the ugly parts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, was, I was wondering if you could even yeah. give it more color. You want more color? Okay. Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. I mean it was to the point... Um, it was to the point that I thought about leaving my body. It, was, it got really dark. Um, the first Christmas around that time, I remember uh, being in the house that we had our 13 year marriage in or part of that and thinking my life is over. I didn't know how to move on. I, I, I couldn't conceptualize it. And then I got really angry that leaving my body is not an option because it would pass this particular pain that I'm feeling onto other people. 
And I remember being pissed for about a week that I can't kill myself because it would hurt other people and that I'm recognizing that. I was mad that I even recognized that. And hmm. um, But coming face to face with these thoughts in, a, in, a, in another way has also helped me to have compassion and understanding with other people that think about and I actually think it's quite normal and occurs quite often that we visit this idea of leaving our bodies and then get rejolted back into why am I even here? Why am I doing this? Um, it was to the point, you know, that I cried oceans. It felt like oceans, lifetimes. It felt like I'm crying other women's pain, my mother's pain, my grandmother's pain. Every woman that's ever experienced betrayal and this kind of thing, I just, it, it didn't seem to end for a really long time. Um, yeah, I, it's hard to describe suffering feeling so fucking awesome as I do right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, but, you um, know, it was, it was painful. You know, thank you for sharing that because yeah. that does put some color on it yeah, for sure. Good. Um, and something that Alex and I talk about a lot is when you're in those particular moments, uh, what's the one thing that you should not do without and what's the one thing that you should definitely stay away from like when you talked about there were some tools some things some patterns and habits you had picked up can you name one or two that really served you well in that period i mean for one the word should doesn't have anything to do in that time period because there's no book how to get you out of there that tells you this is how you should do it you know grief breaks you open and moves in a way that i think I know a lot of people have attempted to. I certainly attempt to. Um, loving yourself for how you're feeling and accepting yourself for how you're feeling, radical compassion, that that helped me. You know, I I just allowed myself to feel whatever I'm feeling and I, I broke down the resistance to it. There are beliefs that I think are really supportive. So I, I, spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, as you so want, I think that generally people move through grief easier and faster and perhaps um, in, a more, in a more supportive way when there's a belief system so that it's happening for you, not to you. So I didn't feel like a victim. Mm. There wasn't a lot of time that I felt like a victim. Maybe I acted like it, but I didn't identify myself as such. I also think that sticking to the facts and dropping the story is really helpful. So the story is my life is over. I'm never going to, I'm always going to be alone. Mm. I'm, I'm going to end up on the streets and who's going to love me now. And everybody's going to look at me and point fingers. And I'm, you know, I'm worth this piece of shit. That's the story. The fact is my marriage is over. So I can live with the facts and deal with them. The story makes it so dramatic that I want to jump out of the window. So that has helped. Mm -hmm. um, At what point what it, did, did... Oh, go it, ahead, Alex. Who is it that you've referred to? Pema Chandran, who mm -hmm. calls that the second arrow? Is that... Yeah, yeah. It's it, She's referring to another Buddhist teaching, but 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 the, the, the Tonglen technique, but about, yeah, second arrow. So like it's already... The first it's already, arrow. It's already a painful situation. And then if you want to create this wild story around it, that's like unnecessary. Yeah. It's like the second arrow that, uh, yeah. you know, the first arrow is already there. Oh, yeah. Deal that's with a that nice one. Image. Yeah. <laughs> no need to add insult to injury. There's other, you know, sayings that, that relate to there. But I, I've always found that to be helpful with me is defining that as like recognizing when I do that. And it's, it's as easy as I, I see this, I see myself do, do this all the time. If I'll do something that I would consider a mistake or something I didn't want to do, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, shit. And that's a second arrow in and of itself. Mm. Like I'm already berating myself for doing the thing that I recognized rather than saying, 
congratulations, you just recognize something you don't want to do again. Right. Good job. Yeah. You know, right. and it's hard to live in that space where you can actually flip it and not like sort of self-flagellate in the moment where you actually most need um, self-love. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, my, my mentor taught us that um, pain is mandatory, suffering is optional. Yeah, that's so one of my favorite. I did, yeah. I did, I'm really proud of that, that I ended my suffering or that I didn't cause myself more suffering than I needed to. It was definitely painful enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, at some point, though, Obviously, mm -hmm. as you're as happy as you are right now, you start to come out of this pain, and there's a moment where infinite possibility, the idea of infinite possibility, starts to present itself to you. Um, is was that a slow sort of a um, appearance, or was that a moment where you where you realized, okay, wow, I'm actually in a brand new place, and as I rebuild, as I come from the ground back up and put the pieces back together, I can decide which pieces to leave behind and put new ones on or, you know, how did, how did that present itself to you? It was sort of gradual because with the shattering of my marriage, I also threw out everything else. I threw out, I, I remember looking at some stuff I had written publicly or posted and being grossed out and being like, Ugh, the whole spiritual, bleh. I was just like, kind of resenting everything and it started over. But I do remember a pivotal point when I lived on Sullivan's Island on the beach uh, with girlfriends and magic was flowing and every day was auspicious and I was in love. And I remember thinking, I'm there. I think I'm there. Sure enough, a week later, the next layer of the adventure happened and my dad died, you know? And so oh. it was it was layered. And during that time, then we discovered that the house, the beach house had black mold and that I'm severely allergic and that all my hormones are messed up, which I'm still recovering from. So I started rapidly aging. My hair went gray. I had like the weirdest health things happening. Um, so it it felt like every every cell of my body got a turnover, just a, you know, kind of a rebirth, not just my consciousness, but on a physical level too. So everything just got renewed in a way, rebirthed in a way. So that, that was four years of adventure. You and know? just as you felt you were coming on the other side of <laughs> yeah. this divorce, then you fly to home to Germany mm -hmm. to spend time with your father mm -hmm. and he passes away. And in that same moment, you realize you don't have a home to come back to because it's right. full of black mold. Right. Well, it's also interesting because <laughs> it's a lot. You're holding your father's hand, yeah, um, and he, you you're with him during his last breath, and you go into a state of like a 17, 18 hour meditation, yeah, um, and and come to realize that sort of while he's gone on and gone to the spiritual place, you're holding on to him in the human's place. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that because that. Sounds like, uh, you know, one of those life experiences that you, um, that is with you forever. Well, I, you know, to preface this, in my 20s, you know, when you and I met, I had studied all this stuff and I was deep diving into the spiritual world. And then when everything went down with my marriage and my dad, that was sort of the test. It was a test for all these teachings. You know, it's one thing to sit in a comfortable office and to talk about these things and to sit in your nice house and to talk about, we're not really our stuff. We're not really our bodies. But it's another to experience it. So in a way, this adventure of these four years was experiencing all the things that I had chosen to believe in the last 10 years to not a test necessarily, but 
to really actually experience the teachings. So one of the teachings is that we're not our bodies, that nothing is permanent. And so um, I had the great fortune and the choice. It was also a choice because I knew what I would do when I got the call that I thought about it. So I got there and my dad was in his body for 30 days. So I had the opportunity to talk to him every day and to ask him questions that I think anybody wants to ask their parents. I remember asking, what are you going to come back as? Hmm. And he said this particular bird. Unfortunately, I don't know the English vocabulary for this bird, but um, he said, I would come back at this particular bird and I see this bird all the time, you know, and I feel his presence all the time. Um, and I was able to ask him what he's, what he's afraid of, how he thinks this is going to go down. And I remember we had this conversation, like I, I said, how do you think this is going to work? And he no, actually, he asked me. He was like, what do you think is going to happen? Because he was initially so scared and so in despair. And I have photos of him. His face is so tense, so exhausted. When he first got the diagnosis of end-stage 4 cancer, he was crying. He was apologizing. He was feeling like he had no legacy. And I, I witnessed this and I was in this altered state, like completely altered state from the shock, but also from this understanding, like this is what I knew would happen and I'm prepared. So I whispered in his ears like, dad, you are not going to get well in this body, but you are eternal. And I remember it just like hmm. something woke up in him and his face relaxed. And we had this month together where I can't describe it anything other than that my very own father, who I always had a relationship with that was somewhat challenging, was an enlightened man. And I was sitting by the feet of an enlightened man learning things about love and about forgiveness and about gratitude. And he spoke about gratitude every day. And the simplest things, you know, I would bring him a green juice and he would explode of gratitude. <laughs> he would smoke a cigar and would be like, this is most delicious thing, gratitude, gratitude. And then eventually he'd be like, so when do you think it's time? <laughs> And how do you think this is going to go down? You know, and we talked about, and he said he would, he imagines an angel coming and grabbing his hand. Um, and once it started the process, you know, it's hard to watch the physical shell going into this breath that I think is called, it has a certain name where the breath is, is really loud and it rattles. And that was going on for 17 hours and he was convulsing the whole thing in a lazy boy in this hospice, you know, and I was sitting by his side. My family couldn't really bear the, the uh, sight. So they kind of came in and out. And during this time, I kept telling him, I'm like, dude, you can leave now. Like, we're all here. We love you. Everything's good. You can leave. <laughs> and then after like by midnight, I was thinking, okay, now I'm getting really tired. Like, why aren't you leaving? <laughs> <laughs> and then I felt his hand in mine and I was like, oh, biggest teaching of all, like, you are the one holding on. I was, and, and, and this is the story of my life. I made myself responsible for him having a good exit. I thought that I'm mm. responsible for helping him. I, holding space is something so different, right? Holding space is realizing that I'm not in charge of your emotions and I can't do this for you, you know? And I'm a professional holding spacer, like space holder. <laughs> and I was freaking rescuing him I was thinking like oh I have to hold his hand and I have to make sure that he's okay no I didn't he made sure I'm okay he held on so that I could be okay and so eventually I let go of his hand and it took only a few more minutes and he took his last breath and that was an experience of energy like 
pure energy just like boom. The door flew open. My little brother came in. My mom jolted out from the bed. I felt this like mm. rush of energy. And that morning, you know, talking about weird things that our logical brain can't explain. That morning, two people had messaged me. One is a woman that is um, very, very intuitive and works as a, I guess, a channel and helps people transition. She texted me that morning and said, today is the day open the window. And another client of mine who's also helped her dad transition, just sent me a message thinking about you. So, you know, we're all connected in ways that that are, we don't have to have logic for it. You know, we don't need to have proof scientific all the time. Although I do think we will eventually find proof for that. Anyway, so that was that day. And since that day that it changed me, you know, like you, I don't, well, I do live in gratitude now way more than, because I was, a, oh, yeah, to make it even more dramatic <laughs> or perhaps poignant, the last word my dad said, dad said before he lost consciousness was danke, which means thank you. Mm. And he gave me a tulip. Uh, even though he was blind, he reached into the vase out in front of him and he grabbed it and he gave it to me and touched my face and said, thank you. And that that's the message he left me with, right? The teaching. And it's the most important teaching. And so since then, I've just... I've intellectualized so much in my life, you know, and we can philosophize and intellectualize and rationalize and spiritualize the simplest thing to live by and to be in is gratitude, appreciation. And so I don't know, even though I'm going on a tangent, I don't remember what your question was. But yeah, just just <laughs> you know, to share with I, us yeah, that experience. Yeah. That was powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And, and it made I think you simple. were... I think you were more on point than you realized at the end there too. I mean, just gratitude, you know, danke and a tulip and overthinking a feeling. Yeah, intellectualizing um, everything, and, you know. And not to not to say you can't have one without the other, but but just the idea that I think and even you said you were studying these things, you were you were guiding people through these moments, you were believing these things, but you have to had to feel them and experience them yourself to really have it land. Yeah. And and not like and I and I think, you know, as you amended your your statement of it being a test, you know, and I like that cuz maybe not a test but just just like this is just how this actually works and and this is how you need to feel it. And so it just actually just uh, drives the it's like a, it's a teacher, it's a guidepost along the way. Here you go. And yeah. and um when I was looking at this description of the thing that you do for people, it's like I wrote down transformational guide. <laughs> and it just, it feels like that that's what you're particularly adept at. And in Joseph Campbell's call to adventure, the circle that the monomyth that he describes, there's normal everyday life. And then there's something that draws your attention and you leap the call to adventure, the move into the unknown, and that's the departure. And then there's the initiation and the transformation. And the transformation is this pivotal moment, of course, that you just described beautifully with your father. He's making this transformation, and you're holding on thinking you've got to be the one doing it for him. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're just there um, holding space, and yeah. he's doing the transforming. Yeah. So beautiful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. I don't know if we need to... Well, you talked, you know, you talked about spiritualizing and, and intellectualizing all those things, which in the head, really, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't help but look at your shirt, John, and you got a, mm. a bicycle spoke that's in the 
frame of a heart. And, and I think that is a part to that story too, just to live more from the heart. Yeah. Um, I come from a programming and programming, you know, and I just spending three weeks with my mom, we had a lot of conversation about in Germany, everything is intellectualized very much so. And so there isn't the conversation about feelings. That's just not, and I don't want to be unfair to Germans, but my experience has been that feelings aren't necessarily the greatest thing. And I noticed that in the States as well. And I basically help people feel, you know, I help them feel and help them use their feelings as a GPS and as a navigation. And that's really, that feelings are your superpower. But I had to learn myself first to feel and not to numb out and run away and intellectualize them. So I've stopped kind of studying concepts and just go into the feeling because it's so freaking simple. And I also used to think that the spiritual path is really complicated and hard and heavy. And that's probably why my spiritual path was really complicated, hard and heavy <laughs> until it isn't anymore. And now it was matching your belief system. It was matching my yeah. beliefs. So my yeah. belief system playing out because that's what I yeah. thought it needed to look like. I don't think that anymore. <laughs> you attract what you think the world is. Exactly. Yeah. And I do think simple, mm. the truth is always simple and expanding and especially simple. And when I used to hear simple things like have a daily gratitude practice, I dismissed that as too simple. I used to think that's just too simple. If you might have to work for it and yeah. that's too simple. Okay. You, yeah. I, I carry some thing, of that for sure. Know? There's like a blue collar work ethic to... Mm -hmm. That, that was passed on to me from generations, yep. actually, that that has led me in the past to believe that, yeah, things shouldn't come easy. Mm -mm. There's a certain, I think you mentioned that when you were younger, there's a certain like hard scrabbleness to yep. like getting it. Yeah. And, and, and that's part and parcel of the process, yeah. you know. Or that people who have it easy are just lucky or that they might even be dumb. You know, I also mm. have that kind of intellectual uh, um, judgment there. So... It's, it's interesting how my programming created these years of struggle. And I take full ownership of that. You know, that's my creation. They're my co-creation. So I'm really glad it's behind me. I wouldn't want to do it again. And I just say that from a human perspective, you know, to be fully transparent. <laughs> like, fuck that shit. <laughs> and I'm so glad, you know. I'm so glad that it all went down like that. Because you're really happy who you are now. I am really yeah. loving I love, you know, success to me is, and this isn't my de definition, this is Gay Hendricks. Success to me is loving where you are and being excited about where you're going. And as in the loving where you are, it's also loving who you are, just content, you know. Mm. So lots of people mm -hmm. think contentment can, can, you can't be content and also have goals. I think that success is really contentment and total excitement about the direction. So I have a shit ton of goals and things I want to grow into and I'm excited about and that pull me forward and outward and make me want to upgrade my habits and my thinking. And I'm also really content where I am for the most part. It reminds know? me of my favorite uh, Shunri Suzuki quote when he talks about uh, you're perfect exactly the way you are. And there's room for improvement. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Mm. The duality, right? It yeah. doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always reframing. And I think words carry so much weight. Mm -hmm. And and I'll hear this all the time when people are in a hard place and they say, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. And, I, and, and I'm always trying to reframe like, no, no, you're you're you actually are, okay yeah. right now. And it and it um, it's just one word. Yeah. But it makes a big difference. And yep. it's what you talked about just now. It's yeah. just like loving where you are right now, being content. 
you know, and, and it, you can be content and be struggling. Definitely. And be in a hard time. Yep. Um, but just be content with the fact that you're not sort of struggling against, you know, what I refer to a lot as moving in harmony with what is. Mm-hmm. The downstream flow. <laughs> yeah, which can sound counterintuitive because uh, so often I, I find myself thinking that I'm actually going against the grain. Mm. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah, I do too. Yeah. You know, but I'm. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, just one of your quotes that I, I, I found compelling uh, Nothing You Want is Upstream by Hicks. Mm-hmm. Speaking to that yeah. point, you know. Speaking of not going upstream, I think John and I, when we were preparing for this conversation, were looking at your auspicious approach to a day. Is that how you describe it? Auspicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that term. Can you walk us through that day? Because it sounds quite. Luxurious. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yes. is it for real? It is for real. Okay. So, in order mm. to hold space for other people, I learned pretty quickly, and as a physical therapist already, way back when I was 19, 20 years old, that you have to fill up your cup, you know? So, most of my time is spent self caring, and I know I'm patient number one, client number one. And unless I'm full and in a space of alignment, I can't do what I'm doing. So, um, I wake up typically an hour, an hour and a half before I have to do anything, whether that's a chosen like workout or meeting or whatever, or a client call, so that I have enough time to raise my vibrations. My natural set point when I don't take care of myself is rather, so I think it's, it's you know, spending time with my mother, there there was a lot of just low vibes and in the generations of the women in in my life, I, I listened to her talk about my grandmother. It was hard times. My mother had hard times. So that kind of energy is in me, you know? So if I don't start my day with a morning ritual, I can feel that throughout the day that I lose the positive vibes if you so want. So I wake up and I uh, scrub my body with a dry brush. You want the whole thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I take a sea sponge, I scrub my body. That really invigorates your lymphatic system. It's super good for... Uh, grounding you and that takes about a minute and wakes me up and then I then I massage my body with oil that's a ritual from Ayurveda which Mm -hmm. I'm trained in that really helps you to have a loving healing healthy relationship with your body and I used to not so it's part of making peace with my body every single morning you know like I love you I love your body thank you thank you thank you so it's it's a ritual while I'm doing that I like to listen to Louise Hay who is the, um, the mother of positive thinking and of the power of thought. And she has a few free recordings on YouTube that you can tune into, and it just feeds your brain right away. How do you spell her last name? H-A-Y. Louise Hay. Louise okay. Hay, the bomb. She recently passed away, and her work will live forever. She's incredible. So she has just like uh, uh, power thoughts that you can listen to, and they affect your unconscious mind. You know the 95% we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier? So it isn't something you're learning consciously. You don't have to intentionally listen to it. You play it in the background, and just like you would suddenly know a song that you played in the background, that's how you suddenly know these beliefs and the thoughts that she talks about. So I basically brainwash myself in the morning with positive thoughts. So that's about minute three. Well, the rest of the day we're being brainwashed by modern advertising, so it's exactly. good to self exactly. brainwash in exactly. the other direction yeah, a little right? bit. <laughs> it's, it's just conscious living where you choose what you're going to get brainwashed into. So we're at minute three of the day, (laughs) unless I snooze. (laughs) And then um, I drink some lemon water and I make coffee while I do that. But then I sit down in my bed, so I'm nicely oiled. And so that feeling is, it's kind of like a post-massage feeling, like that dry brushing, oiling. 
you're awake, your energy system, your your electromagnetic field, your chakra system, everything is awake and aligned, and I feel pretty good. And the lemons get an alkaline quality, which right. is energizing and restorative. Yeah, it's great for your liver. You know, it's super good for your for your skin, for your digestion to get everything going. And then I sit back to bed and I meditate. And I used to meditate um, with mantras, so do TM, and now I really like guided meditations and just listen to teachers I enjoy. So on Inside Timer, it's a free app. My meditations are going to be on there soon. It's I, I, I love that app. So for anything you need in life, say I want some acceptance or I want to tune my second chakra or I want to have a, a connection to source or manifestation or uh, releasing shame or whatever you need that day, you, or healing your body, I'll just put on a meditation. And then depending on how much time I want to spend, I do that. Then afterwards, I write down what I'm grateful for. So all in all, that probably takes me tops of 20 minutes. But it's like rainbows and butterflies most of the time. And if it's not rainbows and butterflies, at least it gets me to a point of connection with myself and centeredness. So when I shows up that day, I feel super centered. And then I usually learn or study something, like a, a book or a course or or write. Sometimes I channel and it's like, blah, it just comes out. Um, and Bulletproof Coffee has been a favorite of mine for a while. You know, that that whole idea of um, hacking your, you know, hacking things. It's very appealing to the German side of me and to maybe to some of that action-taking positive masculine energy that I also have, which is everything is hackable, you know. And if I want to think more clearly and have more energy, I can do that through X, Y, Z. I really enjoy bulletproof coffee and the way that I feel and the way that my brain feels and that lifestyle. So I do that. Um, yeah. I like that. It, it, you know, the second part of that phrase, which takes us back to the experiential, which is like not just do the bulletproof because somebody told you it's going to make you feel clear, but you actually try it and go, I actually like this. Oh, yeah. Because there's a distinct tendency that you might not it might not work for you. Like I can't drink coffee, mm. but somebody told me that I would sleep really well if I dunked my entire head in a bowl full of ice. And so I did two nights ago. And? <laughs> like, I don't know how it's going to work until I do it. Well, to try it. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Slept great. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. See, I'm, you know, I used to like my, my alter ego would be like, F that. I know. You know? Right? Especially looking at who delivers the message. I have my initial instinct oh, okay. is always like, like your reaction to Maybe the a Jesus bit of channeling. Yeah. My yeah, initial yeah. instinct is always resistance. And I just, I say this, my initial like animal instinct is like resistance and judgment. Defense and judgment, mm -hmm. yeah. And okay. then I'm like, okay, let me give this a try because usually everything that I resisted, I now love. See, that's the thing. That's what, I'm listening to Dan Harris talk about meditation with Rich Roll, and he's the one who talked about befriending the voices mm -hmm. in your mind right. and giving them names. And, you know, and here you've done this same thing rather than what so many people would do is try and when you recognize this judgmental, resistant part of you is try and get rid of it. Just get rid of it. But actually you've just befriended it and said, oh, I there's that person, there's that side of me again. And, and been able to, I'm sure through your practice and meditation, be not as reactive. So being able to see it, hold space for it. And then is this a, healthy reaction or yeah. not well i think i think about this a lot how do we deal with this part of ourselves that that bitchy inner critic you know that comments on everything and there was a time when i believed you have to kill it you know mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember this from your early spiritual phases you know of yoga and meditation and 
the the grassroots of spirituality that was like kill the ego that's you right. slay that thing you have to embrace it because it's part of you so I embraced this resistance and then so I tried the bulletproof I really like it currently talk to me again next week and I might be hardcore vegan I don't know I changed my mind a lot about it as I'm a woman and we constantly evolve and I have noticed about myself that I like to stay fluid and open and just go cyclical um, with and so that's you know when I wrote down the answers to this it was what came up so I intermittent fast and most days of the weekend do the bulletproof so after this whole morning ritual that's like my sacred time then the, the next couple hours of the day pretty much until evening are about other people and I briefly check in with myself from time to time and what's awesome about my work is I get to check in with myself all the time because I teach mindfulness and so if I teach somebody how to feel, I get an opportunity to feel mm. because we're checking in with our bodies. It's very much, there's a little bit of intellectual mental gymnastics and then we get back into what's real and we get into the fifth dimension, you know? So I don't spend much time in the blah, 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 blah. We eventually get back into the body. So get, I really get an opportunity to spend a lot of time in my, uh, yeah, in my fifth dimension throughout the day, but my focus well, is on other people. Um one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, has been like a transformational guide in a, in the essence for quite a few clients. And just curious, as far as you know, people who are listening, uh, are there any similarities that you notice? Um, any pieces of advice? Um, any any you know pearls of wisdom that come from having seen this from so many people? You know, most of us. If we go through transformations, we'll have our own and maybe have a, some immediate friends and family. But this is like your work. Um, are there th themes or things that come out um, yeah. that, that are helpful for people to be aware of? Absolutely. You know, and um, and I have to say that sometimes when I just say the theme or the tool or the hack, so to speak, it can seem meaningless. So unless you really sometimes have the experience to it, but I'm just going to say it because okay. you asked, love yourself. I do think the relationship with yourself is really when you strip away any dogma, any concepts, um, and you narrow it down to the reason why most people struggle or don't have the life that they want is because of the relationship they have with themselves. In spiritual terms, you could say their ego is dominant, you know, or the fear is present and they're living in fear. Like, there are so many words to describe the same thing. So loving and accepting yourself, embracing all of yourself, you know, that is to me the number one thing to focus on that you could literally devote an entire year to and still find corners in your soul that you are trying to fill with the validation of other things. And so these holes that we experience in our souls, whether that's a yearning for a new relationship or more money or a bigger car or whatever it is, filling all of that up with love and radical acceptance, I do think that's where, that's the, the you know, it. That's it, that's <laughs> it, perfect. Yeah. That's how you fill the tank up and, that's and, how you and do can, it. can get through the challenging yeah. moments. So my, my, yeah. My self-discipline, you know, my rituals, yeah. the discipline isn't to be perfect or to like, you know, but it's to, to help myself get into that yeah. space, yeah. you know? Because yeah. I listen to people every day with their grief and their fear and their limiting beliefs. And I'm a very wide open person. My energy field is big. And listening to people's fears all day 
triggers my own. So sure. I do this self care so that I can. You can shake fill them up off. from the grass, shake yeah. them up and mm-hmm. fill back up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as Alex said earlier, thank you so much for doing what you do. It's yeah. clearly Thanks, um, yeah. meaningful to all the clients you deal with. And I'm hoping that we get a lot of people listening to this one because there's a lot to take away. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. <laughs> Alex is feeling his feelings yeah. and having a family meeting over there. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'm in my heart. My voice can't even talk. <laughs> um, do you want to set the stage for uh, one of the last tunes you I selected? I love this song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can set the stage. Oh, I, I just—it's <laughs> Alexi Murdoch, Orange Sky, yeah. and I've—I've I've always loved it. So I was so glad you chose it. Mm. Yeah, it's a baller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know. I mean, it's—I um, seeing a sunset or a sunrise every day. That's—it's a part of my day to day. And I'm saying this, having not seen one in a week since I got back, so I miss that. I, you know, there are certain sayings like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. To me, it's like a sunrise or a sunset a day keeps the doctor away. Just, it's so simple. It's always available. And you know what? It's, you know? it's, it triggers in the human experience that sense of awe and wonder. Um, and it does it every time, I find, like sunrise, sunset. And I, I find myself in that position a lot because of my work as an artist takes me to those places, yeah. thankfully. And that was kind of built in. But, but yeah, that sense of wonder and awe that's unfiltered and there's no real words for it. And it's, uh, it's inspiring. Well, I think if you observe one thing long enough, you know the world, you understand the universe. So if you look at a sunset or sunrise, it's different every day, never competes with anything. It's always, always just there. You can trust it. You, you can count on it, you know? So there's so many elements of when you just stay with one little mm. experience and you observe it from every angle, you know the world, you know how the universe works. Just being out in nature, our, our energy system is reset, you know? So it's, I love that song. Well, let's hear it. Orange Sky by Alexi Murdoch. I had a dream I stood beneath an orange sky with my brother standing by with my brother standing Brother, you know, you know It's a long road we've been walking on Brother, you know it is, you know it is Such a long road we've been walking on Brother, 
stood beneath an orange sky With my sister standing by With my sister standing by. I said, sister, here is what I know now Here is what I know now Goes like this In your love, my salvation Salvation lies in your love. My salvation lies in your love, in your love, in your love. Oh, but sister, you know I'm so. Sister, my heart's been broken Sometimes, sometimes my mind is too strong To carry on Too strong to carry on Thrown off the weight of this crazy stone When I've lost all care for the things I own That's when I miss you, that's when I miss you That's when I miss you, you who are my home Sister standing by 
With my brother and my sister standing by With my brother and my sister standing by All right, Orange Sky, Alexi Murdoch. What a beautiful tune and particularly sort of poignant on the tail end of the conversation with Ellie and how vividly and sort of uh, clearly and she was able to describe the passing of her father um, and she just has this amazing ability to be, uh, to express difficult emotions and um, challenging situations but also with an air of ease and... um, Laughter and joy. It's a really wonderful combination. Yeah, t- yes. Um, for those of you who aren't obviously in the studio, just uh, her her physical presence and her ability to occupy very uh, different spaces, you know? Um, she was just so concise with her language mm-hmm. on really challenging topics. Um, yeah. And like you said, really... really you know, light and heavy at the same time. And occupying both of those spaces uh, in a very calm and, um, I don't know, it was was a beautiful conversation. It's the great combination of her, you know, raised in Germany and having that real sort of, I mean, we we talked about it numerous times, that kind of like efficient cut to the chase sort of aspect to her personality, which can be off-putting at times. Um, for some people don't need a little bit of sugar coating on the way in, but it's actually what I really prefer about her is she'll get right to it. But then the language she uses isn't cutting or hard or, or challenging. It's, it's, it's really, you know, soft and open and, 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 uh, compassionate. Well, it's interesting because we started the conversation with who she was at 19. Right. Right. Uh, shaved head, Doc Martens, uh, tattoos, um, that that sort of physical presence, and then and and then who she is now, and I think that that directness, that aggressiveness, you know, has just been softened with wisdom mm-hmm. and experience. Um, but I think she occupies both those spaces. Yeah, definitely, in in a powerful way, you know. Because um, I think so often, like she said in the, in the conversation, we want to kill that person in us. And, yeah, kill the ego, kill, kill the old the, self. Right. You know, whatever parts that you're trying to transcend, you want to completely squash them. I mean, uh, isn't it interesting you. when you always look at pictures from yesteryear? You know, you always think that they don't look quite like you would want them to look. You know, you're mm. like, oh my God, that outfit in high school was terrible, you know? And then you're looking back at what you look like now and you're like, ah, oh, that, that was terrible. You're always great in the time and you're with reflection. And I think that that's just. That's the part that wants to kill the old self, but to really fully own the old self, yeah, uh, feels so much healthier, you know. Yeah, because there's, I mean, it's an intricate part of who you are. Yeah, you know, and there's no way around that, and there's actually no way to really kill it. And 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 I think that oftentimes what ends up happening is it's just a form of uh, suppression and repression, and it's an unhealthy way to. To, to live, you know, just like she said, and I love, I mean, you know, it's good when you're kind of taking notes in yeah, the middle right. of the podcast right. that you're hosting, yeah. like, like I'm just a listener. I'm like, just a student. Got some notes know? here, just a student, go on, you know, right. um, who's asking the questions? Uh, but 
when she talked about having a family meeting, because we were talking about Dan Harris and yeah. naming all the voices in your head yeah. and your sister in that conversation, and then she talks about sitting down and gathering all the children together right. in her mind okay. and having a little conversation. I'm going to go to work, and you can go play, <laughs> and you can go have your fun later. Right. Like, I thought right. that was beautiful. I'm going to yeah. do that. Yeah, And it has that same element that we talked about during the conversation of curiosity and lightness to it, rather than this sort of heavy-handed must squash the ego, must get rid of these unwanted personalities aspect. And, you know, for me, you know, my sort of personal practice um, is a movement towards more freedom and less conflict. Right. And, and in that way, that, that, you know, hits the button, you know, invite them in. Well, she, you asked her what would be like the because th- you you're a transformational coach, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've you've walked through these experiences with more people than any of us get the opportunity to right, see right. or witness. So, what would be the things that you would share? And she said, um, she said, love yourself mm-hmm. and embrace all of yourself. And then when she goes on to talk about the passing of her father and having been in Germany for 30 days and how beautiful experience that was and obviously profound impact on her. She also said, I, you know, I was angry with the fact that I was there and I was- With one- an open schedule. Like, I, I, I don't know how long this is, how long I'm going to be here, but I committed to being here. Right. So there's a part of me that sort of wants him to move on with it. Right. And, but she didn't occupy that comment with any shame or regret or, um, no, it's just being real. It's it's the same thing she mentioned when she talked about suicide. And uh, and she said, uh, just to further the thought, she said, love yourself when the thoughts that come out are really the darkest. Right. 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 That's what it's a hard moment to do. But, you know, there's a, uh, a woman I heard interviewed once who who I think we mentioned this before, but she she was guided by a mentor to say to herself in the mirror every day for a year, I love you. And she was like, oh, the first few weeks I did it, it felt so freaking weird. But after a year of doing it, she really was able to own that space and really feel it. Interestingly, you know, like I've, I've heard conversations with the Dalai Lama and other Tibetan people who will say this concept of self-loathing and the need for self-love is a completely foreign concept. They don't even have a word for it right. in their language. So it is, at least based on, you know, those small data points that I have, Western. a fairly Western phenomenon right. of, of needing to come back to um, appreciating your own unique value, right? Which is so odd that it's actually something we have. It's to It's an epidemic, do. right? It I mean, is an epidemic for yeah. sure, for yeah. sure. And I think you know you could easily point the finger at a lot of different things. You know, mass communications, consumption, and social media. A lot of things that that will um, are aimed at triggering us to feel like we're not enough, which is the motivation to want more, buy more, be right. more. You know, and that occupy that sort of a direction. I thought another, I mean, I thought another one of the most compelling parts of that conversation uh, was her talking about when her father's passing and needing to own that space for him to pass on, right? Having some responsibility for that space. She was holding on. She, but, 
she was the one holding on, right? right? And I feel that a lot of times I probably do that too. I probably feel ownership of the space rather than just holding the space. And there, there's a meaningful difference in the two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You're not there to solve. No. You're not there to be the one to to create the conclusion or the aha moment or anything. You know, right. oftentimes that's all it is. Is just so so often in those moments, what I've found is just repeating back what somebody said. Right, is enough to have them hear it with fresh ears. Like, oh, that's where I am. <laughs> right, you know, <laughs> and it's fascinating. Not easy to do, particularly if you really care, because yeah. that's really what drives it. Is the caring drives you to want to. Um, walk them through it. You want to make it yeah. better. Yeah, you want to yeah. make it better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, glad she's doing what she does. Clearly, it has um, had a big impact on herself. I mean, just the ability to walk people through these moments so consistently and so frequently, I think, really helps her be clear in having a conversation with us like this. You know, she's more clear about how to be direct in those moments. Mm-hmm. Powerful woman. Um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks glad, for glad she's here. Glad we uh, we all got our own uh, uh, holistic life coaching today. Yeah, I'm, thanks, looking, I'm looking around the team, <laughs> and everybody's just like, "Wow, that was that was really cool. That was a great conversation." So, um, thanks for spending another uh, segment with us on yeah. uh, Call to Adventure. Thanks and, for everybody on the team. We got Matt Zutel over there, Tabby Thurber, Andrew King, Chris Hansen. My son holding the couch down and, and, and Bella. And Bella Don't ready to rock Bella. at all times. All right. all right. Peace out. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.